This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area on center field almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. The F&M Schaefer Brewing Company, very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And this should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. All full of a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening. Hi, I'm Mike Kozer, and welcome to the Lost Ballparks podcast. Today, we're talking with Rick Dempsey. Rick Dempsey played 24 years in the big leagues, 24 years across four different decades. He is a two-time world champion, winning with the Orioles in 1983 and the Dodgers in 1988, and he won the 1983 World Series MVP. Rick Dempsey. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I thought it was a little early for this phone call today and that maybe I could play you some organ music just like the kind your dad used to play on Sunday mornings to wake you up. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't your dad have an organ at the bottom of your staircase? At the bottom of the staircase. He bought this uh, big Spanish hacienda, you know, a two-story thing back where in the old, old days, the governor of California, who was a Spanish guy, uh, built this home. The walls were two foot thick of solid concrete because wow. he was afraid of earthquakes. One weird place. In that, and they did have pipes that went through the concrete, but they had long since rotted out by the time we moved into that house. So on Sunday mornings, he would literally wake you up with uh, like playing songs? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, he played <laughs> the organ and he was, a, he was an opera singer in his younger days uh, on vaudeville. Uh, well, that's one way to wake up in the morning, right? Yep. <laughs> one of your first tastes of baseball, I think, came during a drive-in movie in Southern California. Is that yep. true? Maybe late 1950s or so? Yeah, my dad used to take us uh, on the weekends, not every weekend, but quite a few times. And we would watch the double movies uh, back in those days, something John Wayne or whatever had come out with. And in between movies, they showed highlights of the Los Angeles Dodgers in the World Series against different teams. Elston Howard sends a grounder to Pee Wee Reese. And these Dodgers at last are world champions. Delirious with joy, teammates and fans mob the Brooklyn pitcher in wild acclaim. In the Dodger clubhouse is the pandemonium only a great victory can generate. And setting the zany pace are Gil Hodges, Duke Snyder, and Don Newcomb. This is Brooklyn's greatest baseball day. I was so excited just to see the baseball highlights in between the movie. I used to stand on the front seat with my mom and dad and just say, man, mom, someday I'm going to be a Major League Baseball player. That's what I want to be. Rick, the summer of 63, you and a collection of other local 14-year-olds made up the Canoga Park All-Star team. That team would end up having nine kids eventually sign pro contracts, including a future Hall of Famer that you had for a bat boy. Yeah, my uh, one of my friends I grew up with, uh, Robin Yount. His older brother was my age. I think it was like a year or two years older, that's all. And uh, we all hang out because 
he lived next to the grammar school that I went to in Woodland Hills. And so we'd stay after school and stuff and play softball and baseball after school was over until dark. That team made it all the way to the Pony League World Series in Pennsylvania. Uh, but yes. then in, in November of that year, you and your teammates and all the families that uh, were a part of it had the surprise of your life. We won 13 tournaments. I was the last kid to be voted to the All-Star team that year and the youngest guy on the ball club. So I didn't get to play too much. We had some pretty good players, at least five guys that were two years older than I was, and they could really play. And every tournament that we played in, the manager of our team, John Jennings, robbed a bank in every city that we played in. Every city you played in, your manager, Coach Jennings, robbed a bank. Yes, he did. He did. He had an accomplice that we never saw, a guy named Rosenbluth. And um, he would go there, Rosenbluth would go there um, ahead of the tournament and case the banks out because they knew they were going to rob a bank not far from that Little League ballpark. It was a very ingenious idea, you know, to change into a baseball uniform and go <laughs> go manage an all-star game. Right. Out here in Southern California in 63, this was big news all over newspapers and they were looking for these two. So his accomplice would drop him off at the field. To coach the game. Absolutely. Yeah. They were famously known as the Mutt and Jeff Bank Robbers of Los Angeles. Maybe the craziest part of the story, your shortstop's dad was good friends with Coach Jennings. Yeah, the shortstop, Terry Hankins, his father was a police detective who was assigned to the case of the Mutt and Jeff Bank Robbers and didn't know the guy he was looking for was actually the manager of his kid's all-star team. Honestly, it's one of the craziest stories, and I hope that someday they make that into a movie because it I, you can't, when I was reading it, I just was like, this can't be true. Oh, it was. It was. I mean, you can get on your cell phone right now and put in Mutton Jeff Bank Robbers will tell you the whole story. Rick, you were signed by the Minnesota Twins in 1967, called up to the big leagues in 1969, and at that point, the Twins were playing at Metropolitan Stadium. What did you think of the Met? To me, it looked like a great ballpark because I hadn't seen too many Major League stadiums by that time in my career. I remember it was out of the city. It was in a little place called Bloomington, uh, Minnesota, and an open-air stadium. And, um, you know, the wind blew in pretty cold early in the season there. John Miller, who was on in season one of the podcast, longtime uh -huh. broadcaster, when he was calling games in the American League, talked about visiting Metropolitan Stadium and mentioned that when there would be a rain delay, to dry off the field, they would bring out flamethrowers. Did that happen while you were there? And helicopters. <laughs> no, oh, no, they did. They Well, they had these machines. They looked like lawnmowers. They fired them up, and you could see the fire underneath them, and they took them across the infield to try to uh, dry everything up real quick. It did a pretty good job. And I've seen helicopters come in there and try to, uh, you know, dry up the infield with... Uh, you know, with the wings and everything. Rick, back in the 50s and 60s, life could be really tough for a rookie. Veteran players weren't exactly going out of their way to make you comfortable, roll out the red carpet. And there were, at the time, I don't think any bad endorsement deals for first-timers for rookies. So it was not unusual for a rookie like you would have been in 69 to use bats from other guys on the team, right? You got it, yeah. I remember there was only one person my first day in the big leagues. Uh, I got called up at the end of the season in 1969. And the only guy that came over to say hi to me was Harmon Killebrew. 
One of the wow. nicest men you're ever going to meet in all of baseball. He and Brooks Robinson, I think, had the same mother. <laughs> they were just great guys. But uh, everybody else, uh, no, they gave you the cold shoulder. They wouldn't even say hi to you hardly. And uh, we got hand-me-down uniforms, which we were happy to get. It didn't matter. And we had to go to a bat box in the trainer's office to get baseball bats to even take batting practice. So they had some old Rod Carew bats in there. And I liked the feel of his bat. So I took it out there and and I was using it. And um, man, the first day Rod Carew came in. He stopped batting practice and walked in the batting cage. And he says, uh, you using my bat? I said, yeah, it was in the bat box. He says, doesn't matter. Don't use my bat. He, he grabbed my bat. So what was I going to do? I couldn't take batting practice you know, without a bat. So uh, I finished up batting with somebody else's bat. And then I went back in the bat box again the next day. And I took out another Rod Carew bat. I thought, okay, maybe I just really took the wrong one that didn't wasn't supposed to be in there. And Harmon Killebrew pulled me off to the side and he said, listen, you know, they're just going to keep picking at you until you stand up for yourself and that'll stop them. So when Rod was making a big thing, Ricky, I told you not to use my bat again. And I said, well, it was in the bat bags. I don't care. I don't want you using my bat. So I figured, yeah, he was just putting me on to make everybody laugh. So I just I turned around and said to him on Harmon Killebrew's advice. Uh, okay, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't walk around the front of that cage while they're throwing BP because I'm going to swing. And and if you get hurt, that's that's your problem. <laughs> they left me alone after a while. <laughs> yeah, they knew I was crazy enough. He didn't want to get hurt. <laughs> uh, Rick, September 23rd, 1969, you played in your first game at Kansas City's Municipal Stadium. More than 900,000 loyal fans paid their way into Municipal Stadium. And every day there was fun for everyone. Tell me about that experience. Well, that was quite an experience. We were in an old stadium and Lou Pinello was in the outfield. He was their big player back in those days. Municipal Stadium is not a ballpark for long ball hitters. Talented Lou Pinello, the Royals' leading batter, explains. Playing in Kansas City, being a big ballpark like it is, doesn't favor you as being a power hitter. And this type of ballpark, you have to more or less hit the ball where it's pitched and just try to get singles and doubles and have your other team members bring you in. It was just an old rundown stadium, open air. I think it was just falling apart. Most of the stadiums back in those days really weren't all that good. You uh, think about the the Monarchs had played there long, long ago. Oh, uh, yeah. Of the, of the Negro Leagues, the A's played there from 55 to 67, and yet the Royals from 69 to 72. But okay, so that first game, you go one for two and the Twins win six to two and you just must be having like this out-of-body experience. Yeah, oh, that was my first game. I was actually catching Dave Boswell. He was the pitcher that day going for his 20th win. And I remember the umpire, I introduced myself to him and he was one of the crusty old umpires. A A very good umpire, had a great reputation. And I know that when Dave threw a couple of pitches, I said something to the umpire and the umpire tapped me on the shoulder and he said, listen, uh, kid, rookie, you don't come up here and say a damn word to any of the umpires that you see. <laughs> you know, I don't give or anything. What yeah. he thinks a ball and a strike, it only matters to me. So yeah. <laughs> when you come up, you better be swinging the bat. Those first years spent in the American League, you had uh, some games at at many of baseball's most historic ballparks, including Old Yankee Stadium, Fenway, Tiger Stadium, Comiskey Park. Is there one of those that was a favorite to you? 
Well, Fenway was always a favorite of mine. I hit more home runs there than I did at any ballpark that I played in, except, of course, in Baltimore. But yeah, those old stadiums, Yankee Stadium, when I got traded to the Yankees, there was something just mystical about that old stadium and the very short walls down the right field line and left field line. Uh, they're only waist high. <laughs> and the ballpark uh, was, you know, pretty deep in center field, but very shallow down the lines. Fans and all of the history that the, the Yankees had, that Yankee Stadium was incredible. You go to Detroit and it was the same thing, 440 or 460 feet, the straightaway center field. But the, the upper decks used to hang out over the outfielders and you could actually hit a pop up that wouldn't have gone out of the ballpark, but was coming straight down just inside the fence. But uh, Detroit was a very cold, nasty place to play. Um, the dugouts down the right field line were underground. You could just barely sit on the bench and your head would be above ground. You could see the game early in the season. I can never forget just how cold it was there and how hard it was to warm up guys like Sparky Lyle who threw a hundred mile an hour cut fastball. And he was, it was amazing because that hurt. <laughs> that really hurt. Comiskey. Oh, the same thing. Yeah, we, in that old Comiskey in the first ballpark uh, where we played the White Sox, uh, after you got past second base, second baseman, he took a step out in the outfield grass. It was going straight downhill. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the outfield was not very level. I remember that about old Comiskey Park, is that that outfield was just, I don't know, when it would start running, all the water would run down to the right field corner. It was lopsided, but you know what? That's the way stadiums were back in those days. Yeah. So, Rick, at the end of the 69 season, you were sent to play winter ball in Venezuela. I got to hear about the night that uh, your teammate Bo Diaz ended up in the hospital. I'm sure you could fill an entire book with stories from Venezuela in your time at winter ball, but that one in particular <laughs> stands out to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure the name of the city was Barquisimeto. And um, they had a rookie that was starting that night. And I don't know, he threw at me and hit me or something, you know, but it was the second time. And after the second time, I, I chased him off the mound and into left field. And we got into a little bit of a scuffle, you know, a couple punches were thrown, but nobody got really got hurt. But the fans just were so irate because this was one of their young superstars that had come from that city. So they were pretty upset with me. They threw everything at me. They would pee in cups and throw that at you and oh my gosh you know and, and bottles and everything so it was a tough place to play because the fans down there in south america were great fans they were so avid and their routine was during the course of the game they would start bonfires in the outfield taking all the trash from the concessions and everything and and lighting it on fire. It was just part of the way they did things. There was a lot of gambling going on in those days in those stadiums. But again, we ended up winning the game and the fans were not happy with me the last four or five innings of that game. So I took a lot of crap from them. That was no big deal. But after the game was over, we went through the clubhouse. There was no showers there for us. And we had to go back to the hotels that we were staying at and, and shower there. So I know Pete Kogel, and Eddie Sprague were two guys that were on our team at that time. Uh, as we went out the back door into a parking lot where the cabs were waiting for us, the fans were able to walk through that parking lot. And I just told Eddie and Pete Kogel, I said, let's go for this cab. And I went first. And they had just 
gone for a different cab at the same time. So I ended up in the parking lot in the middle of that crowd by myself. Uh, uh, A little fan ran up to me as I was trying to get in the door and kicked me in the ribs. So I turned around and here I am. I'm in a fight with this guy and I've got him down on the ground. It's not much of a competition, but I'm, I'm just trying to keep him from kicking me. I hit him a couple of times and that really infuriated the crowd. And so I jumped in the cab by myself and the fans just all got around the cab and started rocking it back and forth. They were going to flip it over. Oh, it really got out of control. And I was just kind of hoping I couldn't get out of the cab because there was so many people around. And then all of a sudden, everything died down like a calm before a storm. And all this, and I see little El Turco. He was one of the, the country's Secret Service uh, guys. Uh, he worked for the Secret Service. And he was very well respected around the country. He reminded you of a long-haired, red-headed Earl Weaver. He was okay. not very big, but he was, might have been the meanest person I've ever met in my entire life. Wow. And when he walked through the crowd with two or three of his guys that worked for him, the crowd parted like Moses parting the water. <laughs> and he came up to the cab and, and he said um, something to the, all the fans and everything. And they, they left the area. They didn't want any part of him. They had guns drawn. Bo Diaz. And a couple of the other players on the team jumped in the cab with me. So now we've got four of us, one in the front seat, Bo, and three of us in the back and the cab driver. So as we were heading out that gate, all of a sudden, a brick flies through the window and hits Bo Diaz in the neck. Glass flying everywhere. The only one that didn't get blinded by it was me because I was sitting behind the cab driver and he kind of blocked the glass a little bit. I looked over at Bo. He had blood coming out of his neck. Obviously, something cut his jugular vein a little bit. It wasn't squirting, you know, like a heartbeat or anything, but he did have a lot of blood coming out of his neck. Oh, my gosh. So I took my catcher's pad and I put it on the side of his neck and I'm screaming at the cab driver, you've got to get him to a hospital where, you know, hospital, hospital. So this guy went on the wrong side of the street. He damn near ran down about 50 people by the time he got out of that parking lot. And a couple blocks away, uh, we pull into a hospital. Now, police had these kind of sabers on their side. I guess that was for crowd control or whatever, but they were chasing us at the same time. Uh, they got the guy who started the fight by when he kicked me in the ribs and they took him someplace. I was more interested in getting Bo Diaz in that hospital and getting somebody to stop that bleeding in his neck. because It was way too much. He was losing way too much blood. Yeah. We finally accompanied him into the operating room where the doctors were there. And then I was told to leave. So I went out the back door because these cops with the big sabers were trying to get me at the front door. So I went out the back door and there was two more waiting for me there. So they handcuffed me and put me in the cop car and then took me to their local jail. And I thought, oh, geez, I am really in serious trouble now. I was scared to death. So as they put me into one of the cells, I noticed the little guy that I had gotten in a fight with was already handcuffed to one of the sides of the jail that we were in. And they put me about leg distance away from him. They handcuffed me to the side of the jail. So, I mean, this guy kept screaming at me. So 
I kind of started kicking at him a little bit to stay on his side of the jail cell. And there was like chaos. Everybody was yelling at me and I don't know what the hell they were talking about in Spanish. Everybody, it was just complete chaos in that, in that police station at that time. And then all of a sudden, El Turco found out I was put in jail. So El Turco gets his three or four guys that he had with him and he comes busting into the jail and everybody just quiets down and they move out of the way. And he comes in and he tells them, unhandcuff this guy right here and let's get out of there. So he took me back to the hotel that night. and I, I don't know what else happened, but El Turco took care of everything for me. I, I probably would be buried somewhere. Nobody could find me if he hadn't been around that day. If not for the Spanish version of Earl Weaver. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> In October of 72, you got traded to the Yankees to play behind Thurman Munson, who was the first captain of the Yankees since uh, Lou yeah. Gehrig, actually. And you were his understudy. And I'm guessing you learned a lot watching Thurman Munson play. Did you not? If I could ever say I had an idol, it would have been Thurman. As yeah. He played the game the way I wanted to play it. He was a hard-nosed guy, just an outstanding player. He was a, a very good hitter, and he called good ball games. So I watched him. He didn't have a great arm because he hurt his arm, and he actually threw underhanded to second base. And he was an outstanding hitter, especially with men in scoring position. But he took me under his wing. You know, he wasn't intimidated by me or anything at all. Uh, I just enjoyed being around him because um, I enjoyed the stories and I enjoyed the way he hustled, the way he fought and how tough he was at home plate. You know, he blocked home plate as good as uh, anybody, almost as good as Mike Sosha. Mike's the best I ever saw. <laughs> but Those first experiences, those first days at Yankee Stadium were special. You never knew who you might bump into in the clubhouse, the parking lot or even the batting cage, right? Oh, I know. I mean, There's always a ton of celebrities and old baseball players. I mean, uh, Mickey and Whitey were there all the time and Yogi would show up on occasion and Scooter was working for the ball club at that time. And Elston Howard, you name it, we met him. And Mel Stottlemyre was one of the players on that team at that time. And Catfish Hunter was one of the pitchers that I got to catch on occasion. But it, it was just a host of baseball greats. And I'll never forget those things. Bobby Mercer was the center fielder. Yankee fans were like no fans you've ever seen in your life. I mean, Baltimore had great fans also. Fenway had great fans also. But Yankee Stadium had the most avid, great fans you're ever going to be around. On my very first day in New York, I was walking through the Bronx in the afternoon just to see what that was all about and everything. Never had been there. And a cab driver honked a horn at me and yells out the window, hey, Rick Dempsey, hey, uh, hey well, welcome to the New York Yankees. Good luck, young man. Uh, I'll see you at the ballpark sometime. Uh, whoever recognizes anybody in street clothes when you're like a 21 or 22-year-old player coming to the New York Yankees, uh, they're quite avid. They know their players. They know what they look like. They know what they're capable of doing. And man, they lived and breathed Yankee baseball. In June of 76, you were traded from the Yankees to the Orioles. What did, yeah. what did you think of uh, Memorial Stadium your first time there? I mean, obviously you'd been there before, but now now it's your uh, home ballpark. Now it's my home ballpark. I remember that open air breeze that came in from center field. It was 430 feet to straightaway center field and long and left center field and right center field. Very short down the lines. I think it was like 
3.15 down both lines. So Jim Palmer was on in season one of the podcast and talked about how the houses in center field, he loved pitching there because in April, like uh, before the trees would come in, it was yep. hard for a, a hitter to pick up the ball. Oh, you're exactly right. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, they were way out there, but everybody painted their houses white. And that made it very, very tough to see the ball in the background for most of the delivery. So it had kind of a neighborhood feel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dead in the middle of a neighborhood. There was a high school or something across the street in the front side. But in the back and around, it was all a housing development. There was no apartments there. It was all homes. By 79, there was Orioles magic in the air. And I think that was helped by superfan <laughs> Wild Bill Hagee, who would sit in the upper deck, section 34. Didn't you have a, a signal with Wild Bill to kind of get him yeah. and the crowd going? What would you do? When I didn't play, I'd be sitting in the bullpen up against the chain link fence. And if we were down a run or two, or we really needed a rally or something, I would just grab a towel one arm and just wave it up there just a little bit. And then you'd see Wild Bill, he would wave his hat. He knew that after that, I would lead cheer O-R-I-O-L-E-S. I'd make my body into all those letters, you know. And the fans loved it. it. It was the creation of Oreo magic. And back in those days, when we needed the fans to get behind us, it wasn't hard to turn that light on. Yeah. <laughs> you wave up there and they just love that. The fans were the best. They supported us. They came to those ballparks. They filled the stadium every night. And it didn't matter how many runs we were down when while Bill got them going, we got going. And so he was very much a big part of our ball club. You spent 24 years behind the dish, Rick, and I'm sure there were hitters who were among your favorites to have conversations with. Who were one or two of those guys? Well, Ricky Henderson was one of those guys. We've had we had some conversation, just verbal stuff, you know, and I, I didn't appreciate him following me out to the mound a few times. And he would follow you out to the mound? When I went to the mound to talk to them how we were going to pitch it, he would walk behind me and all of a sudden I'd hear the fans laughing. And I'd turn around and here's Ricky Henderson pretending like he's listening in with his hand <laughs> up around his ear, you know. And uh, what I a got character. pissed at him. I said, don't don't ever do that again. Don't ever do that again because we might as well start fighting now. If he <laughs> <laughs> I had some conversations with George Brett. I said, is there anything that I can call that you can't hit? <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. Uh, I will, what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, I never know if I hit a fastball, a curveball, or slider. I just see it and I hit it. I said, oh, well, okay. <laughs> Different game of baseball back in those days. You know, we used a brushback pitch to, to get hitters' attentions and to keep them from leaning over the plate and being comfortable. We, we would knock them down at times if they got a little too crazy, yeah. For Orioles fans, 1983 is a year they will never forget. It all began with a familiar setting of spring training in Miami. As in years past, Baltimore's birds had returned to the South, and it was no stretch of the imagination for these Orioles to be thinking of a pennant. The O's won 98 games that year, faced off against the Phillies in the World Series. It's World Series time in Baltimore as the Orioles take on the Philadelphia Phillies. And you had five hits, all doubles and one home run. It's a deep left field. Matthews going all the way back and Dempsey has hit it out. And we're named the 1983 World Series MVP. 
obviously one of the most special times of your life, baseball life, right? Oh, yeah. No, no doubt about it. The Orioles played their final game at Memorial Stadium uh, October 6th, 1991. You were playing at the time, I think, for the Brewers. I had thought I wasn't going to make it, so I started to write a thank you letter to the fans. I wanted Chuck Thompson to read it. It turned out to be a poem <laughs> about uh, the stadium it, itself. The words you wrote for that special day are unbelievable. She's the lady in red. She's Baltimore's best. And many a great one have come from her nest. She gave birth to a thousand, adopted a few. By the way that she loved them, nobody knew. There was Brooksy and Frank and Booger by name. There was Palmer, McNally, Polly and Blade. Eddie and Flanny and Tippy and Scott, Dauber and Quahar, Stanhouse and Stodd. There was Moby and Kel and Gary and Lowe, Richie and Singy, Gus and the Crow, the Dipper and Doug, another named Dal, and the last one to grace her, the Iron Man Cal. She made Earl her general, Rip Sr. the Sarge, and they led her children on a perilous charge. When the battles had ended on October's subside, there stood the lady in all of her pride. She's gray now and tired and goes to lay down with the penance God gave her to wear as her crown. Glory and honor will sleep at her feet for the miracles she gave us on 33rd Street. It's hard to believe that that's not something you did every day, write poetry, because it was so profound. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it turned out to be pretty good. And really, it was just supposed to be thanking everybody that I played with and you know, who helped me be uh, a better baseball player and a smarter, better, a uh, better catcher. And uh, it was one of the greatest eras, I think, any players in Major League Baseball ever played for an organization because the Orioles were a very strong, fundamental ball club with great pitching. One of the best staffs in history, if not the best. After the 87 season, you go back home to Thousand Oaks, California. And after a while, I think you could tell you still had a niche to play. So you drive down to Dodger Stadium. <laughs> I love this story. What happened uh, in the lobby for Fred Clare, who I think was the general manager of the Dodgers at the time? First year general manager. I had seen Tommy at a banquet a couple of days before. Tommy Lasorda, yeah. And I said, Tommy, if you've got a spot open, I'd like to see if I could make your ball club, even at a, as a backup catcher. If you could, oh, well, we'd love to have you. I'd love to have you. You've got World Series. you got seven playoff championships, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, if you get me an audience with Fred Clare, I, I would love to try to make your ball club. So uh, it never happened. I waited around a couple of weeks. I didn't hear back from anybody. So I said, I'm going to go down to Dodger Stadium myself. I'm 40 years old and I walk into the secretary's office there at Dodger Stadium. I said, hi, my name's Rick Dempsey. Could you please tell Fred Clare if he has a moment, I'll wait until he's available. I'd just like to talk to him for a half an hour about joining the Los Angeles Dodgers. I had never stayed at home and played at home. So that's why I figured it was late in my career. I was running out of options uh, to play on the West Coast. So I sat there at two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, she came to me three times and said, he's still in meetings. He's still in meetings. I didn't see anybody going in and out of his door. So I knew I was getting the bums rush, but I was too embarrassed at that point to say, all right, I'm going home. You waited for four hours, five hours. He finally cracked the door open. And I said, Fred, I'm so sorry. I said, I, I've never quitted anything in my life. If you could give me 30 minutes of your time, uh, I would appreciate it. If it doesn't work out, no hard feelings. Don't worry about it. Uh, I can go home and retire. So he says, OK, come on in. During the course of our conversation, we hit it off beautifully. 
he was so easy to talk to. And I said, well, Fred, this is what I can do. I'll hit a home run every 24 at bats because that's what I've done my entire career. I will drive in a run every five at bats. We'll take your pitching staff and uh, we'll turn it around again. You're going to have the best pitching in the National League. We'll win our division. We'll win the playoffs for the National League. We'll play in the World Series. I'll catch the last pitch and I'll give you the ball. He goes, well, hell, I, I better invite you to spring training. I said, well, that would be a good idea. I said, but if I don't genuinely make your ball club and there's no room for me, I don't want you to feel bad. Just said, okay, thank you very much for trying. And I would just go home and retire and start my managing career. So um, on the last day of spring training, he came in and it was kind of funny because they didn't even let me dress with the big leaguers. I already had 21 years uh, in the big leagues and they didn't even let me dress with the big leaguers really enjoyed those young kids that were trying to make and other guys that were in the same boat as I was in. But Fred LeClaire came in and he says, Rick, can you go to AAA ball for a while till I find out what to do with Alex Trevino? And I said, Fred, I'm not going down there and take some kid's dream away from him. I said, that's it for me. I'll just retire and go take care of my managing career. So he left and I started to pack up to go home. I wasn't feeling bad about it or anything. So he came back about 45 minutes later and he, he looked at me and he goes, Rick, he says, you made the ball club. Wow. Well, I got about 150 at bats, maybe a few more. I hit seven home runs, one more than predicted, exactly 30 RBIs. We won the division. We won the playoff there. We played in the World Series. I caught the last pitch and I gave him the ball. They've done it. Like the 1969 Mets, it's the impossible dream revisited. It's an unbelievable story, and it's worth mentioning, Rick, that nobody predicted the Dodgers except for you. Nobody predicted they were going to win the World Series in 1988. Nobody. Well, but I know I just had so much confidence uh, in my ability to help young pitchers and get through ball games that if you could just throw the ball over the plate or come close, we'd find a way to win games. And I can read the hitters pretty well by the way they stood at home plate and what adjustments they made. And I could read pitchers very well. I threw the ball pretty well, so I understood the mechanics of throwing and what these guys like Tim Belcher needed to do in order to become good major league pitchers. You know, I could throw the target around. If he was always high, I could put it on the ground and try to bring him down a little bit, you know. And he he responded as did Tim Leary and a few of the other guys. And uh, with Tim, fastball slider, he needed an off-speed pitch. I told uh, Fred Clare right in front of Timmy, he's the best five-inning pitcher in baseball, and he got mad at me. Somebody pinned me against ball. What the hell did you do that for? I said, well, Timmy, I keep telling you, you know, you need to have at least a change-up, a change-of-speed pitch that's going to keep people off your fastball. So like overnight, he came up with a split finger fastball. He ended up winning 12 or 15 games that season. Uh, he sent me a ball. He had left the Dodgers that years later. And when he won his 100th game, he sent me a ball in a letter saying, thank you, Rick, uh, for making the biggest impact on me as a pitcher. I won my 100th game and I hope you will accept this baseball as a token of my appreciation. I'm looking wow. at it right now while I'm talking to you on my wall in my office. That is <laughs> so great. What a great story. And yeah. you know, like we talk about in 88, LA wins 94 games. You go to the World Series, you face the Oakland A's with that memorable game one and all the theatrics that were surrounding oh, yeah. it. Did you think Kirk Gibson was available that night when the night Nobody started? When you did. got 
Yeah. Nobody did. You know, if Gibby could play, he'd have been out there. All year long, they looked to him to light the fire. And all year long, he answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs. The bad left hamstring and the swollen right knee. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. He was a gamer. He, he was a big-time gamer. He didn't want to hurt the ball club because he knew the, the spot that he had to play was left field. And if he couldn't get a good jump on the ball, we were going to be hindered. You know, we, we were better off playing any one of the other guys out there and giving at least a chance to stay in the game defensively. When you see him hobbling out of the dugout toward the plate, what did you think? Well, I didn't know what to think. We were all just hoping. That team had a team within a team. We called them the stuntmen. And it started in spring training where we had three or four guys, four guys that were regulars every day. And the rest of us were stuntmen. You know, we had Saxy at second base. We had um, Marshall. The rest of us were all stuntmen. And the stuntmen just had the most incredible spring training you've ever seen. It didn't matter if we were seven runs down in the game. When we all got in after the, the big guys got their first two or three at bats, we just tore these teams. <laughs> Mickey Hatcher, Danny Heap, Franklin Stubbs, myself, Dave Anderson. That team within the team was fantastic because we weren't supposed to win. You knew that. Bob Costas called us the worst World Series team on paper in history, playing the best World Series team on paper in history, and we beat them in five games. The moment the ball leaves Gibby's bat. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. I was in shock. You know, I mean, he looked so terrible during the course of that at bat. I never, never would have thrown him a slider because we learned after a while, all that slider does is speed a hitter's bat up. Maybe a curveball you might call, change up you might call, or a fastball, but never, you know, never a slider because all it is is a three quarter fastball. And Dennis Eckersley, we had the notes on him. He always threw the backdoor slider to left handed batters in the three two count. That was exactly the thing that was going to happen because he couldn't get around on the fastball. You could see that. He was late uh, trying to get out of the batter's box and, and get that swing. Wow. He threw him that fastball, and it hung a little bit middle to middle in. And may, all Gibby had to do was put the head of the bat. He did it perfectly. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. The biggest at bat I've ever seen in baseball history. Rick, I really appreciate the time today. What a career. Two-time world champion, World Series MVP, and a member of the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame. It has been a true pleasure walking back in time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. One quick note. Rick Dempsey played in three World Series, in which he batted 308. He hit 385 in the 83 series, which led to Rick being named MVP. But in addition to being a clutch hitter when it mattered... Rick was also a great defensive catcher. In his second season with the Orioles in 1977, he threw out 58% of would-be base dealers. Over his 24-year career, he threw out 40% of all runners. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by Ryan Beard, Kyle Schmidt, Mike Lipinski, Briggs Buckingham, Mike Dunn, Alex Kemp, Xavier Guerra, Mandy Zablakis, and John Carter. Thanks so much for listening. Looking forward to being back with you soon for another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.